Good morning. Well, this morning we're in Acts chapter 12, so I want to encourage you to turn there in preparation. We're not quite volume-wise halfway through this book, but there's going to be a definite change in subject matter here in the First 11 chapters, we have read of the expansion of the church and fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the gospel would reach Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and the ends of the earth. As we learned in chapter 7, it was the martyrdom of Stephen that pushed the church beyond Judea. Now beginning in chapter 2, we're going to learn of a new persecution that pushes the church all the way to the ends of the known world. Let's Stand, And we're going to read just the first four verses of Acts chapter 12. This is God's holy word, inspired and authoritative for us today. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Let's pray. Father, as we thank you for your word, we we stand ready to learn from it, to be edified by it. Thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity to worship you today here in this place amongst these people. And we just pray that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, for 10 or more years after the martyrdom of Stephen and the conversion of Paul, the church suffered actually relatively little persecution. And I say that based upon several timing clues. The first of them is in Galatians 1, 15 through 18, that says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem, to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. So we saw this a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 9. And then following that, we know from Acts 9, 28 through 30, that Paul went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So it seems that Paul, in Jerusalem, was disputing against the Hellenists, who were Jews that were influenced by Greek culture and philosophy, as well as others. This led to greater persecution for a time, or at least against Paul. But after the church sent him to Tarsus, verse 31 of that chapter tells us, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. We know that Paul stayed at Tarsus for approximately 10 years, perhaps more, because in Galatians 2.1, he tells the church there, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. 
Now, we don't know if this refers to the time that we have recorded here in Acts 12, or if it's just a few years later than this time after his first missionary journey. But I hope you can see that Acts 12, Act 12 events occurred at least a decade after the events of chapters 9 through 11 that we have been covering. And then one additional timing clue is actually from history itself. In Acts 12, Herod Agrippa's death is described as occurring during the same time period as the rest of the events that we read about here in this chapter. And we know that Herod Agrippa died in 44 AD. That's a little more than 15 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And in mentioning that person, Herod Agrippa, I don't know if many of you know about him personally, but I do want to pause tell you a little bit about this tyrant king. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Maybe you know that name. Herod the Great was the Herod that ruled at the time that Jesus was born. And he was also the one who put to death the young children at Bethlehem. Herod Agrippa, who was a young child at this time, was sent to Rome to be educated. And there he grew up as a close friend of the emperor's family. Now Agrippa, we know actually quite a bit about him from history. He was not wise with his money. He built up a lot of debt in Rome, supporting his habits and lifestyle. And because he could not repay his creditors, he fled back to Israel in 23 AD, where he lived in poverty and humility under his uncle, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the one who's the king during Christ's crucifixion. Now, I know there are many Herods in the biblical story. So the quick summary is Herod the Great was the king during the birth of Christ. Herod Antipas was one of Herod the Great's sons who was king when Jesus was crucified. And Herod Agrippa, who appears in Acts 12, is Herod Antipas's nephew, which makes him Herod the Great's grandson. Confused yet? I think probably even more interesting is, is just thinking about the fact that Herod the Agrippa was alive at all these key events, right? He was a child at Jesus' birth. He was living in poverty under his uncle, probably even may have seen Jesus come in to be questioned by his uncle uh, when Christ was crucified and became king during the time of the book of Acts. But after spending what he felt was enough time to escape the people to whom he owed money, he decided to go back to Rome. He was actually more comfortable in Rome. But when he arrived, he was put immediately in prison by Emperor Tiberius. Well, it, Tiberius died not too long after that. And the new emperor, Caligula, you may know that name, Caligula, who had been one of Herod's best childhood friends. That tells us probably a little bit about Herod Agrippa because Caligula is one of the most vile uh, men of history. Uh, anyway, they were best friends, and Caligula not only frees him from prison, but gives him a gold chain weighing as much as his iron chains in prison had weighed, and he also made him the ruler of Israel. Okay? So that's how he comes to be king. He's appointed that way by his best friend Caligula. And Agrippa is one of the most self-centered individuals who does whatever it takes to promote not only his own interests, but to gain popularity and influence. So when he was in Rome, he lived as the Romans. When he was in Israel, he lived as the Israelites, whatever it took. 
And that's why he put James to death according to 12.2. And when he saw that it pleased the people, that's what you read there. When he saw that it pleased the people, he thought to himself, why not try to get the leader of these Christians, Peter, and put him to death as well? They'll really like that. Well, according to Jewish law, murderers and apostates, and apostates are people who have rejected the faith, were to be killed by the sword. So when Herod put James to death by the sword, what he was communicating to the Jewish people is, James is an apostate Jew. Does that make sense? And that made Herod Agrippa definitely immensely popular. So the next thought, like I say, was if killing James was making me popular with the Jews, imagine what killing Peter would do, but it's the Passover, and you don't put people to death during the Passover. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, as you read in verse 3. So this is about popularity, right? It's not about Peter, per se. So he didn't want to become a popular with the people by actually breaking a more significant Jewish law of putting someone to death during the Passover. So he imprisons Peter instead. And verse 4 says, though, that he was guarded by four squads of soldiers. And in the Greek, literally four squads, that word squad is tetrad, which means a, a group of four. So there are 16 soldiers, all appointed. It's hard to imagine Peter could have been dangerous enough to warrant 16 soldiers. But verse 6 tells us that he was bound with two chains, right? One chain on this arm to a soldier, one chain on this arm to a soldier. And probably this precaution is taken, so many guards, because Herod anticipated the church might try to rescue him. And what is Peter's reaction? Well, a little later in his life when he writes in his first letter that we must cast all of our cares upon God, for he cares about us. Apparently he practiced what he preached because while he's in prison, he, on what is to be his last night, Peter is sleeping. Obviously he knew how to cast his cares upon the Lord. And while he slept, the church prayed for him. Verse 5 says that Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Sometimes we face difficult, trying times. Close friends suffering from an illness, our spouse unemployed. We have a son or a daughter who straying from the ways that we taught, but we can learn from the example of the early church as they continued to pray. The chapter here says that the church's prayer was constant. That word constant comes from a word that means to stretch or to strain. The people were straining in their prayers. They were agonizing in their communication of needs to the Lord. And if Herod had known that the church was doing that, even at night, praying for Peter, obviously he would have laughed. What fools to think they could overcome 16 soldiers in iron chains by praying to their God. The sword had fallen once, and it would fall again soon. And so we pick up the description of that final night here in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. 
And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. You know, as you read, as you read this, maybe you're trying to think through what's happening, or maybe you just gloss over this, but often when I wake up at night, probably like you, right, you feel tired and groggy. There are times when you wake up at night, it was just about a week ago when the rains were, the clouds had come in and there was no light. We live out, as you know, out in the country. No light if the clouds are in the sky and it was pitch black in the house. And you've, you've had those moments where you get up and you can't see anything. You don't remember where you are because you're so tired. You pause to get your bearings. I think that's how this situation is unfolding with Peter. And I like how one author suggests Peter's probably still half asleep in disarray, sandals on the wrong foot, tunic hanging loosely, hair uncombed, he says. Dazed and bewildered, he must have been like a sleepwalker who's not quite sure where he is or why. That could be, it makes sense certainly of these simple commands like put your shoes on, get dressed, right? Verse 9 says, Peter went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought it was a vision. He didn't know if he was awake or not. And it wasn't until they had walked the length of one street that according to verse 11, he came to himself. So definitely sleepy. In the meantime, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that led out of the city. It opened for them, it says, of its own accord. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. The chains fell off. He walked past the two guards chained to him, past the rest of the guards patrolling the prison. Remember, 16 guards, soldiers. Through an iron gate that opened of its own accord. He's awake now. He walks to the place where he knows, which is John Mark's home. And I want you to have this picture of these weary and frightened Christians who don't know what God's will is. They've experienced the death of James. They've got Peter that's now imprisoned. What's going to happen next? I want you to imagine that and realize that they are calling upon a power that is greater than Herod. And here, if you will, 16 soldiers could, might as well be the entire legion of Rome. Legions barring the door. Could be thousands. It doesn't matter, does it? It takes only one of God's messengers, a single angel, to set Peter free. We have to remember that we serve that same God. We have to remember that when we face crises, and we don't know what the Lord's will is, that we must pray, as, as Peter says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, to pray without ceasing and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God and Jesus regarding you. We don't always know what the rest of God's will is in a particular situation, but we know that God delights in our prayers. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It means that there is such a spirit of dependence that it should permeate everything that we do, and that is the essence of prayer. Even when we're not speaking consciously to God, there is that deep abiding dependence on him that's woven into the heart 
in the fabric of our life. In a sense, we pray or have the spirit of prayer continuously. It should be the type of thing that as you walk out, like I say, I said before, on a, a beautiful morning like this morning and you see the blue sky, you immediately thank the Lord. It means that as you hear some news, maybe a text comes to you or you hear something from a family member about something, the, the immediate thought is praying to the Lord in that moment, right? And as, depending on the severity or the seriousness of it, gathering the family together, let's pray for this person right now. It's this attitude of living in the presence of God before his face that guides us in all moments that is meant, I think, by Paul when he says, pray without ceasing. In fact, I like what this author says. He says, there's a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of life's affairs. In other words, living normal life. But deep within, he says, behind the scenes at a more profound level, we may also be in prayer and adoration in song and worship with a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings is how he ends that. Let's continue with verses 12 to 17. Luke shares some details of Peter's return. He says, when he realized this, i.e. when he came to himself, when he realized he had been freed from the prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, so John Mark, and it's the same person that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Many were gathered together praying, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate. Maybe you don't understand what that's saying, but it just means, Peter, you know, and she forgets to open the door for him, right? Leaves him standing there in the middle of the night but runs in and reports that Peter is standing there. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Nice. <laughs> They've been praying for Peter to be released. He's released. You're out of your mind. <laughs> but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So this is a joyous section, right? It's a humorous section. Peter returning back, middle of the night, probably a cold evening. Servant coming to the door, seeing Peter, leaving him there in her excitement, telling the disciples the news, them thinking she's seeing things perhaps seeing his angel, it's popular Jewish culture to have thought that every person had a guardian angel that could assume the form or image of the person that he was protecting. So that's what they're wondering, if that could be it, some kind of message being communicated. And Peter is eventually welcomed in, and the people rejoice. But the key section of this chapter is the one we often pass over quickly because we like that story. We like the story of Peter being freed from jail and the church praying and then this kind of funny section. But this actually, I think, is what this is about, verses 18 to 24. 
We'll read them together. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man, the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, and because, because he did not give the God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, breathed his last, and then the, highest, the, the climactic moment here is in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So the first word of that verse, but, means as a contrast to what has come before. No matter how hard Herod tried to please the people, to guard Peter with 16 soldiers, to consider himself master not only of his own life, but also of the entire people of Israel, he was unsuccessful. Not only is Peter freed, but Herod himself is struck down. That's when we read, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It means that despite king, despite military, despite the entire country being in opposition to God and his word, yet the invincible word of God and its impact increased and multiplied. And that's the confidence we need today. Yes, we will have crises that hit us as a church. We will find ourselves striving in prayer, unsure of what God's resolution will be. It may seem like the world is winning. Does that seem like it today? Like the world is winning? Those who rule over us may appear to be triumphant, may even boast of their power over God, certainly over the church. But that is not the end of the matter, is it? And so I want to encourage you with these three brief things in this regard. First, as we read in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Are you concerned that nothing will solve the frustrations that we face with regard to our state and federal governments? Do you feel that the wicked are prospering and that things are just becoming worse and worse? Remember that God's word can accomplish what no human word can do. It can bring conviction and convert the soul. Don't forget what God said through Isaiah in Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Clearly, the issue is always what is God's purpose? It is not 
whether that word is effective because God's word is always effective. It always accomplishes its purpose. Second, God's word is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16 reads, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul tells us that the word of God is sufficient to make every man complete, every, and every woman complete and equipped for every good work. Sometimes we treat God's word as if it's just an empty set of propositions that fill the pages of our Bibles, moral stories, worshipful poetry, and more. But God's word is more than that. When we say that God's word is sufficient, we are claiming that everything we need to know about God's will, to communicate that truth, to live as a Christian, all of that is there. And that's the reason why God says in Isaiah, it will accomplish my purposes because this is God's word. Third, God's word is eternal. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So people die, institutions pass away, civilizations crumble, but God's word is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that's brought particularly out strongly in the account of Herod's death there in verses 21 to 23 of our passage. The story of Josephus recorded these words when he was telling a history of the first century that included his own country in Israel. He said, at Caesarea... Agrippa exhibited shows in honor of Caesar, knowing that this was celebrated as a festival for his welfare. There came together for this occasion a large number of provincial officials and others of distinguished position. By the way, Josephus is not a Christian, right? Has nothing to do to support what the Bible says. On the second day of the shows, Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout of quite wonderful weaving, and entered the theater at the break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's rays fell upon it. And its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who were gazing at it. And immediately his flatterers called out from various directions in language which boded him no good, for they invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us, they cried. We confess you to be a God. And he did not rebuke them, nor did he repudiate their flattery. But soon afterward, he was seized with a severe pain in his bowels, which quickly increased in intensity. He was hastily carried into the palace. And when he had suffered continuously for five days from that pain, he died in the 54th year of his life and the seventh year of his kingship. End quote. So the great... King Herod Agrippa lasted 54 years and dedicated seven of them to eliminating Christianity. He was not successful because he was fighting against the living, sufficient, effective, eternal word of God. But the word of God continued to increase and multiply. Verse 24. The late James Montgomery Boyce makes this observation. I think of those who have tried to oppose the gospel over the centuries. There were times when Christ's enemies tried to oppose the expansion of the word of God by the sword, just as Herod did when he executed James. 
The powerful said, if you continue to preach this gospel, we will take away your lives, and they did. There have been countless martyrs in the history of the church, yet the word of God has not been bound. The more the enemies of Christ have killed his followers, the more the gospel has spread outward like ripples on a pond. Others have tried to suppress the word of God by ridicule. They have concluded that physical persecution does not work. Killing people does indeed often turn them into martyrs, and Christ's enemies don't want to give the church heroes. So they have ridiculed Christianity and attempted to tear the heroes down. They laugh at us saying, who in their right mind would believe such a foolish thing? The French agnostic Voltaire tried to destroy the church by ridicule, predicting that within 50 years people would have forgotten even who Jesus Christ was. But the very year he said that, the British Museum purchased a Bible manuscript from Russia for $500,000, while a copy of Voltaire's book sold for eight cents in the bookstalls in Paris. Fifty years after his ignorant prediction, the Geneva Bible Society was running off thousands of Bibles on presses that had been set up in Voltaire's former home in Geneva, which I thought was a clever thing by the Geneva Bible Society to do that. Those are good words by Boyce. We can't lose our confidence in God's word. When the church rejects belief in the living, effective, sufficient, and eternal nature of God's word, they not only become biblically illiterate, friends, they not only water down the message that saves, but they declare peace instead. God warned Israel in Jeremiah 5, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets are prophesying falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Then down in chapter 8, they have healed the wound of my people, lightly saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace, and you can hear that, the priests ruling on their own authority, not the authority of God's word. If they had let that word be their only authority, they would have understood the danger of rebelling against God. The people would have only been hearing repeated warnings and not words that made them feel good about their situation. But instead, false prophets spoke of continued peace. And what does God say about and my people love it so. They love it. They love to be placated. They love to be told you don't have to serve God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can keep living like the world. But what will you do at the end of it, God says? What will you, what will you do at the end? Because the end result of rejecting God's word is that God's curse came upon the entire country. And the people's response, what is their comment in 512? Misfortune will not come on us. We'll not see sword or famine. So in the face of a direct warning by Jeremiah, they proclaimed a false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And I see the very same things happening today. And I am concerned. I see people fearing the power of the wicked too much. Right? Looking at our situation, fearing the power of the wicked, and respecting the word of God too little. Well, at the beginning of our study of Acts, Jesus' disciples 
were in hiding in Jerusalem and given an impossible mission by the Lord. Take my word to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And 12 chapters later, equipped with that word and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, this same small group has expanded to thousands of Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. And now we find Christians outside the borders of Israel, including even some of the most unlikely converts. An Ethiopian eunuch, a murderous Pharisee who had persecuted the church, a Gentile military officer, and the story is not yet even to the halfway point. Praise the Lord that he gave us his word and that we can have the confidence that we will accomplish God's purposes in season and out of season, in the midst of tyranny, in the midst of society-wide wickedness, and even in our greatest crises. The word of God is invincible, and it heals, it restores, it edifies, it converts, it convicts, it blesses, and so much more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your magnificent word. We thank you that you love us, that you've given it to us, that it is relevant today as much as it was 2,000 years ago and before. Father, help us to have confidence in your word, even when we don't know fully what your will is, to pray without ceasing, to strain in our prayer for the things that trouble us, but to know that the solution is your word, your purpose, your will, your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.